Welcome to Rebel Without Applause, where we explore the important sports, entertainment, and culture moments that move the needle. I'm your host, Maurice Bob, and today we have a very, very special guest. This man really needs no introduction, but you know, I'll give it a shot. <laughs> you know him as the co-founding and two-time Grammy-nominated member of the legendary rap group UGK. He's an elder statesman in the rap game who is respected and loved by all. He's a Trill OG, the Trillist OG, and he still performs over 40 times a year for fans that span the globe. He's a professor, an activist, a sneakerhead, a gumball 3000 driver, a husband, a father, a grandfather, and the ultimate man of the culture and the people. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Bun B to the program. How you doing, Mo? Hey, it's, it's really good to see you. Um, you know, first and foremost, um, I have to ask how you and your family are doing during these difficult pandemic times. Uh, you know, your son, you know, uh, tested positive. How's he doing? He's good. He's negative now. He quarantined. He and his wife both were positive. Um, they quarantined. They finally got a, um, after two weeks quarantine and they got um, negative results. And so now they're back home with their family. Yeah, that's really a blessing. Um, you know, I myself had six family members get it. Four of them went to the ICU, um, you know, but they're all, you know, safe and, and recovering now. Uh, it's just a really, you know, crazy virus that we really don't know a whole lot about. So, you know, I'm just really glad to hear about your, your son doing well and your family as well. Thank you. Appreciate so, it. Uh, so, you know, this, this show is called Rebel Without Applause. And I like to flip that word from rebel to rebel. And so in the spirit of rebelling, you know, if you look back at your life, what was one of or one of the most rebellious moments in your life? Um, I mean, easily with the day I told my mom I wasn't going to college and I was going to be a rapper, you know, that did not sit well with my mother. It's crazy that you say that because out of all the things that you've done in your life and you've done many, I was thinking that might be on the list, but it's crazy that you actually mentioned that, you know, um, from what I understand, you had two college scholarships. Yeah, yeah. I had the opportunity to go to one university for acting, and then I had another, an opportunity for um, academics. And so um, what a, I just made a decision that that's not what I wanted to do with my life. Not that at that moment, you know. What does that look like? What is, you know, if you chose to, you know, take the other uh, way in the fork in the road and decide to actually go to college? You know, which one of those two would you have pursued, academic or acting? Um, that's a great question. I probably would have gone with the academic. It was um, it was for electrical engineering with Amico a long time ago. Okay. And so had I taken that scholarship, you know, you, you they pay for you to go to college and then you get an entry level. It comes with entry level employment at the company. But okay. that would have put me in the field that eventually collapsed with the fall of Enron. You know what I'm saying? So had I been good at my job, I probably would have been at, at Enron when it folded. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, looking back now, you know, it's, it's clear you made the right move, but that tells a lot about, you know, how your mind works, you know, in an engineering fashion. Do you apply that same kind of engineer mind, you know, to your rhymes? Well, I can't really say that because you know, it's not like I, I made I took like engineering classes in high school and adapted in that. Right. This was based off of math and science or whatever. But, you know, there's a level of focus that I've always had when I wanted to get things accomplished. And that really hasn't changed. You know, um, if there's something I feel I want to do, I'm going to put everything into it. I'm going to give it all my energy and all my attention. And so that's always been something that's kind of stuck with me, you know, and I love proving people wrong about me in every way that, that I can. And so that probably would have been one of the ways to, to do that. You know, um, I always try to operate at a high level okay. and being in that field would have obviously given me uh, a position to do that. So I would have just had to, you know, take the ability and the ability to do so and put the effort behind it. I mean, I, for for whatever reason, I could totally see, you know, you excelling in that field, you know, even though it's not something that you pursued. Uh, but I was curious about the acting part. You know, how right. how did you get into 
an acting scholarship and like, you know, what did that look like as far as, you know, was that an interest of yours coming up? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I was very active in the drama department in high school. And, um, you know, it, it definitely was a passion of mine. You know, at the time I was very interested in, in films, you know, in TV shows in particular. And it was just something that I just, I felt like I wanted to be a part of. I never knew if I was really going to be good at it, but it was something I wanted to try. Um, and then I had a um, like a moderate fear of crowds or whatever. So that was kind okay. of a, a facing that fear, you know? But I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the people um, in it. You know what I'm saying? I thought we all were going on Broadway and shit. And, uh, <laughs> okay. And uh, But no, it was a really great way for me to kind of express myself. And there were a lot of different plays um, in school that allowed me to, like, stretch my life. I, I played Romeo in school. You know what I'm saying? Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I was... um. You know, it weren't a lot of guys that took like a very strong interest. It was like me and two other dudes that I knew really in the program. As far as men, the majority of it was were women who were like like active participants in like UIL competitions and stuff like that. You know, and I I just enjoyed it. You know what I'm saying? I used to you know watch a lot of TV. I was a latchkey kid for many years, so I spent a lot of time at home by myself watching like HBO and Showtime. <laughs> oh wow! So what what are some of the like uh, TV show that would surprise us that you, you know, grew up on and loved? I don't even know if people even remember a lot of the stuff I used to like. I mean, um, there used to be a TV show called Soap. Oh, yeah. Okay, with uh, <laughs> Butler Benson, right? Huh? Yeah. Wasn't yeah. Benson on that yeah. show? Yeah. Okay. That's where Benson come, the character Benson uh, came from, Robert Guillaume. Um, okay. From that show, Soap. And Billy Crystal started on Soap as well. And it was just the way that it was set up. It was really like, um, like it wasn't meant to be taken serious at all, you know, but they did touch on some like real life scenarios during the show. Um, but it just looked like fun, like the way they, you know, kind of bantered with each other in a very nonsensical way. You know, I really enjoyed that uh, as a show. I also was a big fan of like Night Rider growing up, just the mystique. And, David Hasselhoff. <laughs> yeah, who was actually a friend now, which is crazy. You know? Really? Yeah, yeah. We met through Gumball, so he's like a really good friend of mine now, you know? Wow. But, hey. You know, things like that, you know, fu- you know, either futuristic, like science fiction kind of stuff, or like pure comedy, you know? That's kind of where I'm at. Never really a lot of dramatic acting, which surprised me when they when they told me I had to be Romeo or whatever, because that's extremely dramatic, you know. Um, but I enjoyed the challenge, you know, and it was crazy because our school was the uh, high school. I went to two high schools, right? So I went to one high school half day for like a magnet program, which was okay. which was a pretty, you know, pretty much an all black school, like 95 percent black um, for, for my magnet program. And then I went the other half of my day but like my English math and science and stuff like that and, and drama at, at this other high school, which was predominantly white. So for me to be playing like a black Romeo to a white Juliet um, was, it was different, you know, it was different. Wow. I'm, glad we I'm glad we didn't put it off for the parents. I bet there would have been a lot of parents that wouldn't have been crazy about that. Cause I actually had to like not tongue kiss her, but we had to like touch lips or whatever. And nobody had a problem with, you know, I mean, the students laugh. Kids laugh, you know. Like I said, had this been something that we put on for parents, I think I think there might have been some parents that might have taken issue with that for sure. Her parents were very liberal, though. Like she was, a, she grew up in a very liberal, um, kind of like hippie, not not full on hippie, but very open minded family. You know what I'm saying? I think my mama probably would have had more of a problem with me kissing a white girl to be honest. <laughs> You know, but, um, you know, thankfully, you know, everything worked out well. You know, it was received well by the students. And, and you know, I just, that's just a point in my life that I really enjoyed. And I still enjoy it. I have different opportunities to act in, in my adult years as well. You know, I did Video Girl with um, Megan Good, which allowed me to actually act opposite Ruby D, which is, I mean, you know, it doesn't get more, you don't get more royal of a, of a figure from, from, from acting than Ruby D, you know, she is 
she's you know probably the epitome of what you seek to become if that's the trade you choose and so to be able to act against her she actually like beat me up in the in the movie you know oh really (laughs) yeah she didn't like me at all in the movie and she's like all right young man i'm gonna i'm gonna be getting very physical with you i said miss d you do whatever you need to do I'm i'm a big boy i can handle it you know uh, how many how many takes did it take to you know get your proper beating? Uh, probably about five takes, I think. We ran through like five times. I heard just kind of different ways of like slapping me and grabbing me and stuff, and I had to be just kind of stand there, very stoic, right? And I mean, you know, she's not a you know Ruby D. She was a, a much older woman now, and she's it wasn't like physically taxing or nothing. You know what I'm saying? If you can't handle a couple of slaps from Ruby D, you got bigger problems. Yeah, yeah. Somehow that reminds me of uh, that Harlem night scene when, uh, you know, Eddie Murphy gets punched out, uh, you know, for uh, stepping on a, a toe or whatever. Uh, Pinky toe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Uh, that's, that's probably one of the most iconic moments, in, at least in black film uh, that I can recall. For um, sure. But you touched on something that I also thought might be another rebellious moment for you. Uh, the Gumball 3000. That seems like light years away from what people would think of you or that you'd be interested in and doing or what have you. How did that come about? And, you know, how did you even get into that? I had a, a, a mutual friend. Uh, we didn't really know each other very well, but we knew someone uh, in common. And so he reached out to me. I'm going to try to make a very long story, very, very short. But he reached out to me, asked me, did, had I ever heard of Gumball 3000? I was like, no, he was like, um, he's like, well, call Muggs. Muggs can tell you. So Muggs is the DJ from Cypress Hill. And so I okay. and Muggs was like, you know, homie, I've done everything. I've been everywhere. You know what I'm saying? There's not too much in the world I haven't done. And that's probably like the greatest thing I've ever done. It's like, so if you can do it, you should do it. So um, it's an international race. You know what I'm saying? 3,000 miles in seven days that we drive. And so that particular year, my first year was, um, it was London to New York City, right? Which I didn't really understand how we were supposed to do do that in cars ocean. <laughs> you know what i'm saying um but basically we drove from uh, we started in london we drove to amsterdam um we left amsterdam we drove to copenhagen uh we left copenhagen we drove to stockholm then we flew from we got on a charter plane and we put the all the cars on a cargo plane and we flew from um stockholm sweden to bangor maine um u.s air force base okay uh, Drove from Bangor, Maine to Boston for the night, then from Boston to uh, Quebec City, Quebec City to Toronto, um, stopping at the Niagara Falls on the way to New York City. So we did. We we drove through all those different cities. Uh, it's it, we say seven days, but it's really six days because the first day is like registration and partying or whatever. But we we typically do three thousand miles in cars in six days. I feel like there's a lot of traffic violations going on there people getting locked up for speeding and reckless driving and wrecks and things like that did you ever come across those situations wrecks no um not as many wrecks as as you would think um there was one particularly bad wreck in the earlier years but it was a lot looser back then it wasn't as uh logistically organized as it is now but like when a guy has a wreck it may be like a you know a tire blowout or something or a gear shift to go out something like that but in the 10 years that I've done it, like in terms of like a wreck, uh, somebody wrecking their car, I've only seen about maybe six wrecks. And we're talking about 120 cars every year. So that's over, you know, 1,200 cars that I've seen participate. And I've only seen like maybe five or six people get in a wreck. You know, now tires blowing out, going, you know, catching flats and stuff like that. That happens all the time. You know, running out. I've seen guys run out of gas in Death Valley. Uh, that was Lewis Hamilton, the black F1 driver. He, uh, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, they gave him a car, and apparently it, it didn't have, like, a full tank of gas. But even even then, like, he was in this very, very high-performance vehicle. And so with some of these cars, if, you know, if, you, if you're out there really driving it, you'll burn out a tank in, like, an hour and a half, two hours. You know what I'm saying? So, you, so there's a lot of, you know, especially the guys with the high-performance stuff, the Ferraris, the Lamborghinis or whatever, they push them very hard. Um, and so they're usually pulling over like every hour and a half to at a gas station somewhere, but it's fun, man. It's a, it's an amazing way to see the world, you know? Um, 
as an entertainer, we travel around the world all the time to different cities, but it's usually um, we only see like the airport, the hotel, the venue, and maybe a restaurant. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I had been to Amsterdam before. I had been to London before, but like driving um, from city to city like that, like I've driven through Italy. I've driven through Russia. I've driven through uh, Romania. You know, I was maybe like an hour, hour and a half away from Dracula's castle type of thing. Oh, wow. Um, I would have stopped there. Hmm? I would have stopped at Dracula's castle. That, that, that well, seemed yeah, like yeah. And so that day we had like nine hours of driving. So we had to figure out if we wanted to go that far off off track because that would have added three hours. It would have taken us oh, an hour okay, and a half okay. to divert and then an hour and a half to go back. But there are times where we're in certain areas and we'll take the long way to get to certain places just because it offers you a different route unless you see different stuff, you know what I'm saying? Like, um, you know, I've been into, in Geneva, like we had a flat tire in France and we had to drive to Geneva. I mean, to Zurich, I'm sorry, not Geneva. We had to drive to Zurich to get a, a tire change and then go stop somewhere in Germany on the, on, on the way to uh, Italy. So just, you know, I've had some crazy things happen. You know, I've, I've seen some wild stuff. I had a blowout at the border in Russia and didn't have a spare tire at the time. So I had to like, well, not a blowout. We had a leak. We had a leak tire at the border, at the Russian border, and so we had to like put super glue on the tire and duct tape to keep the tire <laughs> from from airing out. You know that was the way we had to like plug it on the highway. I still had to drive like two and a half hours into Russia. And, it's um, crazy when you see duct tape on cars or whatever else. But then you like, I can't think of like if I needed duct tape right now, I couldn't find it anywhere. Like. It's, it's crazy that you even had some. <laughs> well, well, the duct tape was easy to find. It was the super glue, right? Because I was like, regular duct tape probably ain't just going to stick to this tire. Like, we need a really strong adhesive to keep the tape to, to keep the tape on the tire and keep the leak covered, you know? And that was the best thing I could think of was like, well, let's get some duct tape and get uh, some, some super glue. And so, like, within five, I've asked five people. I had the, the tape, but it took, like, asking. And we were in groups of 25. So I didn't find the Super Bowl until I went to like the last car, the 25th car. Um, oh, wow. But you do what you got to do. You know, you do what you got to do to keep going, to keep pushing. I've had, I had a blowout in the mountains of Italy at like, you know, 11 o'clock at night on a holiday weekend. So you couldn't get, there was nothing you could really do about it, you know? So, yeah. So we had the car towed to a, a lot. Then we had to call a cab and take a cab from basically from Italy to Monaco. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah, I've been to Monaco. Monaco is really um, opulent. And uh, you hear stereotypes about Monaco, and that's one place where the stereotype really lives up to it. You know, you see these Russian billionaires with models hanging up off of them, and it's it's crazy. Uh, Monaco was yeah. something else to see. Yeah, we were there from whenever we went to Monaco, it was for F1. So oh, we, okay. So we would stay at the Fairmont Hotel, and we would be able to watch it from the from the pool deck of the Fairmont Hotels, which is right over what they call the hairpin turn. So it's like one of the most famous parts of the route in Monaco. And in Monaco, there's no racetrack. They literally race through the city. You know what I'm saying? So it's not like you go out to a racetrack and watch the race. They race through the city because the city isn't necessarily that big or the country, you know, the city of Monaco and the country of Monte Carlo are pretty much the same thing, right? It's yeah. all the same thing, but it's beautiful. It just sits on the side of a mountain and, beautiful blue water and all you see at that time of the year is i mean there were easily you know maybe 40 regular yachts and like 20 of what you could only describe as like super yachts like crazy crazy shit uh, you know I, i've been to monaco but you know that f1 race there is on my bucket list uh you know tickets are crazy hard to get so yeah it's literally the most expensive day um well it's it, it, it's battle now but for the years F1 in Monaco was the most expensive place in the world on that on race Sunday, right? So on that Sunday when they, they actually run the race, not the preliminaries, because it's two days of preliminaries, and then the race is actually on the third day. And so on that third day in Monaco is typically no one spends more money in one city on one day than in that city on that day. And so, like, I know each ticket, each ticket for us, I think, was like, 2,500 euro, something like that, just to sit in like bleachers. Like you couldn't even go to the pool in the hotel that day if you didn't have a ticket to watch the race. Wow. Yeah, I mean, 
you came and sit at the pool and people still had, you know, sections and, and people had cabanas and champagne. I'm talking about we were at the pool at like 9, 30, 10 o'clock that morning and the champagne was already flowing when we got there. <laughs> no sense of time. Just like start the button. Just just go. These people live in a totally different world. I was with the heir to Chanel uh, who was being like a bit of a dick that day too. Like he was, he was acting real funny or whatever. And so he was actually about to get them hands put on him and his, his people is like his family sent some people to come get him. But I mean, you, you know, it's, it's a lot of crazy, crazy shit, a lot of crazy shit. Well, I mean, that's, that's going to be crazy to be able to tell those kind of stories. You know, uh, you know, I know you're a grandfather now, so, you know, you've got a, you, you probably got a crazy well of stories to be able to tell them, you know, when they ask about, you know, what you've seen and what you've done. And there's a lot of pictures of a lot of this stuff as well, because I live in an age where it's easy to document stuff. You know, like the earliest years of the group, like the earliest years of UGK, that's not anything that we really anticipated documenting, right? Like, you know, you don't really, in the moment, you don't really know exactly what you're doing in terms of legacy, right? Like we're just making music. We don't know how long it's going to last. We don't know. Um, how much is going to sell, how deeply it's going to affect the culture. You know, we was just making music. We look back there like, man, we didn't, there's so much amazing stuff that we were a part of that we didn't think to document at the time, you know, because a video camera back then was a big deal. Like it was a very big, cumbersome piece of equipment. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's, not like, it's not like a phone or something, you know? So, um, but I mean, you know, we, we, we had more than enough memories to get us by. But nowadays, especially when, when gumball is concerned, like uh, that's one of those things we document heavy. And, you know, I did the first couple of years with friends and, and acquaintances or whatever, but then I convinced my wife finally to join me on gumball. So she's done a couple with me now. And, you know, it's, you know, it's amazing to be able to share something like that with the people you love and just, just see the world. You know, we've driven across Japan. Most people will never even, see the parts of Japan that we saw, right? I know a lot of Japanese people that I've met since then that live out there. Like I've never been to that city and I never would have driven to that part of Japan. Like because of the fact that we have to drive so many miles every time, like Japan is a relatively small country. So we have to kind of take like the long exaggerated way to get to certain places, you know, because say like, you know, going from Osaka, Japan to Kyoto, Japan is really only about an hour and a half, two hours. So we had to go like three and a half hours this way to a racetrack and then another hour and a half over here to a museum and then come back around in two and a half hours just to make the drive interesting, you know. But I mean, outside of being able to pull up to Mount Fiji because of what the time of year it was, I mean, we I mean, there's, there's very little of Japan that I didn't see driving in three days. I mean, I drove all over that thing. It was crazy because we actually had a situation where we're driving and we're on the side of a mountain and then all of a sudden the road just stops and the police cut it off because there had been a rock slide that day. Oh, wow. So we had basically had to turn around and backtrack another hour and a half and take another road to get where we were going. I've seen some crazy shit, man. I've really seen some amazing stuff. Driving through Japan is like literally being in a Godzilla movie. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way, but like it's my wife always felt like she was in Jurassic Park because it was so green and so mountainous and the foliage is so thick and the trees are so high. She was like, something's going to come out of it from behind them trees. <laughs> and you never know. I mean, especially if you were doing it in 2020, you just never know what's going to happen in 2020. Yeah. Uh, is your wife a foodie like you? Absolutely. My wife is an amazing chef. My wife, um, my wife does the majority of the cooking at home, to be honest. So when you guys are out on the road, you know, you guys are finding the best places to eat. And like, do you compete on who's able to find the best place to eat while y'all at certain places or whatever? No, um, we normally, when we're on the road, um, typically the, um, the majority of the travel that we do in America is in the South and the Midwest. That's where my core fan base is. So we'll do something in LA and we'll do something on the East Coast or Philly or whatever like that. But for the most part, we're in the South and in the Midwest. So we're always trying to find, you know, we always start with the basic, like, you know, because there's, there's a group of people that I travel with. So everybody don't really eat the same thing all the time, but we all agree on fried chicken. So that's usually our first thing, like as soon as we touch down, because I don't I drive myself. You know what I'm saying? No matter what city I'm going to, I don't let 
like promoters pick us up and stuff like that. I'll fly in and I'll just rent a, a SUV or something. And we'll hop in and we'll go, you know, we, we book our own hotels. We, you know, we do everything in house. Okay. Um, our only, our only obligations to the promoters to show up to sound check and to show up to the show, you know? So we'll hop in a car, we'll go to the hotel, drop the clothes and everything off. And then, you know, we'll all start looking for, you know, best fried chicken in that city. So different people do that. I found this place called this. I found this place called this. We'll kind of pick which one we want to try first. And if the first one is right, we don't make it to the other ones. You know? <laughs> Keep going back. Yeah, we just go there. So, but it's usually, you know, for us, the best chicken that we find um, with locations around the country is Gus's. This place called Gus's Fried Chicken. Um, oh, with the hot chicken. Uh, no, no, Gus's doesn't really do hot chicken. They do a little spicy chicken, but it's not like Nashville hot. It's not like that. You know, Gus's, I believe, based out of out of Memphis. Okay. But, but the the continuity that basically every Gus's you go to, the chicken tastes pretty much the same, right? Then so we've been in maybe 10, 11 locations around the country. And that's the reason why we always like, well, let's see if there's a Gus's here first, you know? And if there's no Gus's, then we'll try to see what the best, what the locals say is the best fried chicken or whatever. And, um, you know, we just try to have a very good meal. You know what I'm saying? Keeps us normalized or whatever. We don't want to just be eating room service and stuff yeah. like that. And it gives us an opportunity to commune. We'll drive around. We'll go to like local museums or, you know, whatever their fans, you know, their, their favorite tourist spot is in that city. You know, so if we go to Louisville, we'll, go to the Muhammad Ali Museum or something like that. You know what I'm saying? So we go to different places in, in, in different cities and we just try to make like a whole trip out of it because you can just pretty much just fly into a city and just go straight to the room. And like I say, eat room service and all of that. We, we want to see the world. We want to enjoy life. You know, I think gumball is also a big part of that too. Right. Like, you know, just the whole point of, yo, let's get in the car and drive around and see what the city has to offer. My wife was like, I'm tired because we've, we've been to a lot of these places many times. Like I've been traveling for 28 years performing. I've been to a lot of these cities a lot. So we can't just keep going to Dallas to the hotel. At some point, we got to get out of the room. We got to go do something while we're in Dallas or while we're in St. Louis or Jackson, Mississippi, you know. And you go different places at different times and it'd be like, yo, man, I know y'all used to like to go and eat at so-and-so, but there's this new spot out here now called this and y'all need to try that. So. It's fun, especially when we're on tours, um, because we tend to play earlier. So we're not like, you know, a lot of cities you play in, you come out the club at two in the morning and in the South, you're pretty much stuck with eating Waffle House, which isn't always bad. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, sometimes we're like when we're on a big tour, we'll be done at like 10 o'clock on a Friday night and you can still get a good table at a good spot. You know. Oh, yeah. I mean, it must really make things, you know, a lot more rich. When you when you found when you travel with your wife and you got to get the experience, you know, all of these different places together and you can have you can share stories about, oh, remember that time we were here? And we did this and we saw that and we ate this at that place. You know, we did that probably two weeks ago. We just kind of, you know, just sitting around the house bored, not really a lot to do because of COVID or whatever. And um, I had just bought a new laptop It's the laptop that I'm on right now. And so I was, you know, updating a lot of stuff from my cloud. And so all of these different random pictures were popping up and we looked at when we, you know, we went to Costa Rica and shot a music video for three days, and, um, you know, being in the nightclubs in Tokyo, you know what I'm saying? With people buying like 30 bottles of Dom P at a time. Like, you know, we just look at the life that we've been able to live. You know, I met Ken Griffey through Gumball. He's one of, you know, one of my best friends in the world. I never would have thought that I could get on my phone to just call Ken Griffey. Yeah. Really cooking in the backyard, you know, but, <laughs> Uh, we've had an, an amazing life, man. We are truly blessed and we, we never take it for granted and and we're not jaded by it either. So we still look at stuff and be like, yo, we, we literally did like one, you know, we were sitting around and we realized like, yo, we, we traveled like literally around the world. Right. In in seven days, like, well, well, this technically 10 days. Right. So it's like, we flew from, we flew from Houston to London. Right. We drove from London to France, to Italy, we jumped on a plane, um, flew from Italy to Kazakhstan, reloaded the plane with gas, then flew from Kazakhstan to to um, uh, Osaka, Japan, 
then from Osaka to Kyoto, Kyoto to this other little small town called Nanao, and then from Nanao to Tokyo, and then flew back to Houston. And so that literally takes you like cyclically, like around the world in a circle. And we, it took us a while to realize that we literally went or traveled around the world in like 10 Circle the globe, yeah. Yeah, yeah like literally. That's crazy. Um, you know, when you think about, you know, where rap has taken you, um, you know, can you have thought of this? Because I know you said, you know, I remember one time you saying, you know, when you first start rapping, you rap for your hood. And then after that, you start rapping for, you know, the world and then you start rapping for yourself. And, you right. know, could you have pictured, you know, the scope of what you've been able to do and see, you know, when you first started out? Not even remotely. I, I, I wouldn't have believed if you told me that rap would have took me to Dallas from Houston. You know what I'm saying? Like, we had no idea. We had no idea how far that was going to go and what all we were going to really be able to do and um, what we would be able to see. And so um, we just constantly reminded of how blessed we are because we still continue to go places we've never been. As many places as we have been, there's still places that we have never been. And um, it's, 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 it's amazing, man. Like I'm consistently over and over again, like have my mind blown about the shit we get to do, you know, dinner with Obama, you know, nobody gets to do that. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and so I just, I can't wait to see what the future holds. Like I'm really, I'm actually supposed to be in Cuba right now on this, on this year's gumball. We would have been in Cuba this year. You know what I'm saying? Driving around Cuba, um, just balling. You know what I'm saying? But, um, yeah, man, it, it's it's amazed me how far this thing is taking me, you know, and it's all been from from rap, hip hop, whatever, however you want to place it or, or label it. It's being a part of the culture has opened up the literally the entire world for me. I never thought I would have I never thought I would have actually seen Russia. You know what I'm saying? And we drove through Russia like at like nine in the morning doing like a hundred through the center of St. Petersburg, right on the way to Estonia. Like, nobody get to do that type of shit. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, especially if you remember how contentious, you know, USA and Russia relations used to be, and how it's hard to picture yourself there, even even this 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 many years later. And even Cuba um, is even worse. The relationship with America and Cuba is even worse than that. You know what I'm saying? Um, has yeah. we had rec- like we've been able to rectify it with Russia since the Cold War. We've never really truly rectified it with Cuba since the Cold War. You know what I'm saying? So just the fact that we were going to be able to kind of just, you know, mash through the city like that, because we don't we don't do anything very calmly and coolly. Like we pull up in 128, the most expensive high power vehicles you could ever see at one time. And we burn it down. Right? Like we're on the highway, man, 120, 30, 40. I've seen guys in the Bugatti go 220. Ooh, they can really open it up. Yeah, it's going so fast that by the time I saw that it was in my rear view mirrors, it was past me. Like, if, if you can imagine that. Like, I looked, I'm like, oh, there's Bugatti. And then the Bugatti was past me. By the time I saw it behind me, it was in front of me. Like, that type of shit. And it sounds like wow. a jet. Like, a Bugatti doesn't sound like a regular car. It literally sounds like a jet when it passes by me. Wow, that'd be wicked. Uh, and I can imagine, because I was able to go to Cuba, I want to say a year and a half, two years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to make sure I could go because I knew that they were getting rid of, you know, the access to go. And I could just imagine the juxtaposition of those old school cars that they have all down there and those new cars that you guys have. And like just the comparison and the way that and with the backdrop of those old, that old architecture and the, you know, the old kind of outdated, dilapidated South Beach look it has there. Um, that would have been crazy to see. Um, you know, I, I hope you guys still get to go to go do that. Uh, I think we're gonna go next year. Okay, okay. And and the food is good. I went to a place to eat that uh, Anthony Bourdain rest rest in peace that suggested, and that restaurant was amazing. So, uh, you know, the food is there. I still got all the. They allow you to bring a hundred Cuban cigars back. Uh, so okay. I got my whole hundred. <laughs> uh, I've only smoked like three of them though. Uh, so I, I still have all of them pretty much. Um, but yeah, Cuba's Cuba's amazing. Um, I definitely want to go back when they when they let us. I don't know when that might be, but um, I definitely want to go back. For sure. Um, so, you know, another 
kind of standout rebellious moment for me when I look at your career was now where you teaching at Rice University. Um, yeah. It's one of those things where you're surprised when you hear it, but then when you think about it, you're not a surprise, you know, because you, you know, you've always presented yourself well. And even with the pathos of the kind of rhymes you write with UGK or whatever, it's like you're this griot and you're, you know, you're taking down these, these specific moments within hip hop or within the world, within life. And you're, you know, you're making a record of it. So I could see that you would have this, you know, all these experiences to be able to call from and teach, you know, is when that first happened or that opportunity first happened, you know, how did you tackle it? And what did you, did you say, Whoa, this is way out of my lane. Or like, how'd you even uh, approach it? Yeah. I was very concerned about dropping the ball. Right. Like, you know, for one, I, I never went to college. I don't have a college degree. I never took a college course. I took AP classes in school, but I never took like an act. Well, let me let me take that back because I did a summer program used to be called Minority Scholars Institute, where they basically let you stay on campus for like a summer semester. You would go to class every day, um, but it still wasn't an actual like college class. Right. But it was like an AP summer summer school class situation. Okay. Um, but as far as like the way that I was assuming that college people taught or spoke or whatever, I didn't really have a frame of reference for it from personal experience, you know. And the the person that I was co-teaching with, his name is Dr. Anthony Penn, and um, he's the most tenured professor of color at Rice University, which is a very uh, distinguished university. It's the number one university, hands down by far in the state of Texas, not just because I'm saying so, that's a fact. Uh, it's, it's typically ranked between 14th and 17th in America, as far as universities, it's a private university. Um, and so it really only allows for some of the best and brightest minds in America that come into those into those Harold Halls. And I didn't wanna, I didn't wanna make him look bad. I didn't wanna make the university look bad because the proctor and the president were kind of concerned about having me on, on campus. Um, they didn't really know what to think about it because there was no precedent for it, you know. Uh, but it ended up being a fundraising year. And so a lot of different schools on campus uh, wanted to have the, the rapper on campus come to their <laughs> fundraising dinner. Right. So then the school got a lot more open to it because it's basically just a bunch of parents that want pictures for their kids and shit. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But we have some really, really amazing classes. I remember. um you know, I'll never forget this. You know, Russell Simmons had gone on a book tour around the country for one of his books. And the university's business school, like, had tried very, very hard to get him on campus. And he said, I'm not going to come to that university unless I'm in Brother Bun B's class. Like, that's the only room I want to sit in on your campus and discuss anything, you know? Um, I took, you know, I was very humbled by that. He came in and luckily I have a few business students in my class where so they were able to be a part of that conversation, whatever. Um, you know, we've had, you know, Mike Epps come in, you know, Mike Epps was born and raised as a Jehovah's Witness. Um, but he's also very, very, um, recognizable in the hip hop community. You know, many people right. consider him a hip hop comedian. So they did. <laughs> my class was a hip hop and religious course. Like it wasn't a music course. So my class wasn't in the music department. It was in the humanities department. So, um, and so when I would bring in different people, it would be people that had these very unique, uh, life experiences. You know, we brought Lil Kiki in, you know, into the class and Lil Kiki had been born and raised, um, in the shrine of the black Madonna movement, you know, okay. very unique, um, religious, uh, group. This was a very specific group. Of, of people who, you know, formed in Detroit and some of them migrated to Houston. And so I wanted them to be able not only to speak on hip hop, but also speak about religion, their you know, their respective like disciplines within their religious upbringing and how that kind of determined who they eventually became, you know? And so we, we were able to have some very, very interesting conversations about life. Like music was always a very minimal part in terms of, you know, you couldn't just take Bumby's class and expect to hear, you know what I'm saying, the top 10 from Rap City or, you know what I'm saying, yeah. what's playing on number one on the radio at on top eight at eight, right? Like, that's not what we're doing. We're putting music in America and its proper 
context. We're putting religion in America in its proper historical context. We're showing the parallels that they have, right? In terms of the way they connect with black people in America. But then we also show at the different moments and times where they kind of intersect, you know, because music and religion has done, always served that same purpose for black people, right? It's been a way for them to gather, it's been a way for them to commune, and it's been a way for them to get information, you know? And so those are the kind of things that we really talked about in the class. You know, and I, I, I hate that I haven't been able to, to teach in the last three years or so, but that's because I, I didn't teach and I didn't, I didn't put music out and teach at the same time. So for me, there was a period about a four and a half year period where I didn't put any new music out. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that there's a certain level of commitment that you have to have with the kids. Like, you know, I taught uh, two times a week. I had office hours on campus. Uh, we had a lot of other ancillary duties, you know, being associated with the program because it was really a cultural exchange program in the sense that I was the culture, right, coming of the culture coming on the campus. So it was a very unique experience. I wanted to take it very serious. I wanted to make sure that I gave it everything I could. And I realized, you know, I just, I didn't feel that I could do the class and the students justice by, you know, constantly working all the time. So we would do maybe one show on the weekend, you know, sometimes two, but I needed my Sunday. So like, if we were gonna work, I'd have to work, leave Friday, you know, go out and perform on Friday night perform on Saturday night and get right back Sunday and I'd be in my kitchen walking around working on my lecture for Tuesday morning, you know, and Thursday morning. But it was extremely fulfilling. I was very um, honored for them to trust me, um, not only with the position, but with the children, you know. Um, I didn't want to lead them the wrong way. I wanted to make sure that they got the experience that they should get from me in the classroom. But, um, and I still see my students all the time, you know. Um, and they still call me prof, you know, <laughs> even in, you know, they'll come to my shows or whatever. And they'll be like, prof, Hey, this is Marco from, you know, I was in your class in 2017. I'm, hey, what's going on? And what are you doing now? And they tell me what they're doing with their life. And I'm so proud of these kids. You know, I, I, I know how it feels because I'll see my teachers, right? Sometimes I'll see some of my old teachers and they'll tell me how proud, how proud of me they might be. And, you know, asking, you know, what am I up to lately? So I, I understand and have much more respect for the position of being a teacher and an educator than I probably ever had, you know. It's funny how life is full circle like that, you know. You yeah, see I, think my grief, I can tell you, like, <laughs> even being a good student, like I was, I would still like give my teachers grief in class. Yeah, and so I, I saw the, uh, you know, the webinar you did uh, with Dr. Penn on race and racism in America. And, you know, right now, you know, we're obviously dealing with the um, the other side of the effects of watching George Floyd get murdered you know, in front of right. our eyes. You know, um, as we try to move forward from this, you know, and it's, it's, it's kind of, um, you know, difficult to predict, you know, why was this moment a tipping point? And do you see the momentum shifting to a point where we get we get some significant change out of this out of this moment, even during COVID times? Well, I think the, the fact of it being the tipping point is because I think the method, right, and the medium were made the difference when it comes to George Floyd, right? The fact that everyone kind of saw it through the same mediums, whether it was social media or whether it was television, right? Everyone kind of saw it all the same way at the same time, right? But we see images of people being murdered constantly, right? But they're often in, in a flash of a second. They're usually very fleeting, right? Um, and it's almost always gun crimes, right? So I feel like um, most people in America are somewhat jaded, not fully, but somewhat jaded when they see crimes committed with guns in America, even if it's a murder, you know? It can be off-putting, it can be uncomfortable, mm -hmm. but it's still something that you strangely have grown accustomed to. But, you know, in George Floyd's case and you know he was literally tortured right like his death was very slow it was very painful right and you saw the entire moment from him actually being alive to him and you watched him you didn't watch him die right you watched him dying yeah it was a snuff film it was really bad yeah you know and 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 i think the other thing is because of the fact of covid that we are all at home right so we're not seeing it in passing 
we're not hearing it, hearing about it or whatever. Like we're all watching it. And I don't care who you are, right? That was very, very, very upsetting to have to witness, right? And so you would have to be a very special type of soulless human being to not be affected by what you saw. And so and this is where the shift comes in when we talk about the shift in this matter was the fact that, you know, for many years, black people have been talking about what the police do to us in our communities, right? How we're treated, how we're assaulted, how we're murdered. And because of the fact that there's never really been a lot of tangible physical evidence to watch and see it happening, people have always had like levels of excuse. Well, I didn't see what happened. And we don't know what happened and what, you know, we don't know who did what. And Wait so for the facts. <laughs> right, right. I mean, we always end up giving the police the benefit of a doubt, right? In this case, you couldn't do that. You just simply couldn't. There was no excuse for, for that level of escalation at all, right? Um, it was undeniable what happened in that moment. And so now that you realize that it is true what black people have been saying, and now that you've actually seen it for yourself with your own eyes, you know what I'm saying? Now, where do you stand? Because it's easy to try to excuse yourself from the conversation, right? Prior to this, now you realize that, okay, this is real. This is actually really happening to people simply because they're black. And older white people have seen these things happen for many, many years, right? If you're over 60 and you're white in America, this is nothing new to you, right? But for young people, right? There are a lot of young white people under 23, 24, 25, where black culture for them is just popular culture, right? It's not black culture, it's culture, yeah. right? And there's a level of inclusion that young white people are comfortable with in terms of um, communing with black people, partying with black people, dancing, right? With black people, like in a very, very innocent, you know, like this is the fave, this is the best song out right now. I don't care that who made it, I love this song, right? Mm -hmm. And so white people, they don't want to be excluded from popular culture, right? They want to be a part of everything that's popping, everything that's cool. And you can look across the board right now, almost everything that's cool encompasses black lifestyle and black culture, you know? And so at a very minimal level, as black people, as white people are like, hey, don't do these people like that. We like these people, right? Mm -hmm. We don't have a problem with black people. Black people are cool. Did you see that last TikTok dance thing? <laughs> right? Type of thing, you know? But then on a much deeper level, they're inheriting this world from us, right? And this isn't the world they want to live in, right? Young, the majority of young people in this world don't want to live in a diverse, um, diversified, divisive world, right? They're very comfortable being around people that aren't necessarily like them. They enjoy the things that they learn from people that don't grow up or don't live the same life or have different cultural references than they do. They're comfortable with that. It doesn't bother them. And that's that's a new concept from white people in America. And that's why you see the numbers shift, right? In terms of, you know, because white people were generally told to be afraid of black culture and be afraid of black people and fear black people. But young people, young people are not accepting that. Right. They're not cool with the notion of it. They don't see the purpose and they're going to rise up and stand against it, you know. And so I think that's the one thing that's encouraging about the movement. That doesn't mean it's done. Right. But that yeah. means allies. Right? That means we have help because black people can't get rid of racism by themselves. If that was the case, we would have done it centuries ago. So we need white people to help us eradicate racism. Hell, black people don't even know who the racists are until somebody say, the N-word, we don't even know who don't like black people, right? The clan, the clan always did everything anonymously, right? The clan wore robes and wore hoods over their heads so that they could walk around in the city during the day. Hey, how you doing, Jimmy and Bobby and all of that type of shit? And then at night, let's go kill them niggers type of thing. <laughs> yeah. But they've always hidden, they've always, racists have always hidden their true colors and their true intentions, right? Only the boldest of the racists from white America have actually been consistent in showing their faces. The George Wallace, for example, right? People who are very comfortable um, feeling this way about people of color. And so I think there is a shift happening, um, but we can't just take it for granted because of the fact that some white people marched with us and actually stood up to fight with us. Like there's still hard work that they have to do because they're the front line 
in confronting and pointing out racists. You know, they grew up with them. They go to school with them. They live in the neighborhood with them. They work with them. Hell, some of them are in their own family. You know, yeah, you see a lot of that. Yeah, and so there's there's a level of indifference that maybe some white people have had about racism, probably because they're like, well, I'm not racist, so I'm not a part of the problem, whatever. But if you give license to racists, right, and you allow them to be racist around you and amongst you, and you never call them out on it, and you never confront them about it, and you never question it with them, right, then you might as well be racist yourself. You know, everyone has to actively fight this, right? You know, in, a, in an anti-racist way, not just, not being, being not race, non-racist is the start. Being anti-racism is the finish for white people in America. Yeah, I, I am encouraged like you about seeing a lot more these young people from all spectrums and walks of life standing there with us. And I think that's gonna get us a lot further than we've gotten, you know, in a long time. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm very encouraged by that. And, uh, you know, I appreciate you being out on the front lines and leading and being the activist that you are. Thank um, you. So, I mean, you know, like I said, you are really the certified curator of this culture. And it has been a huge pleasure having you on. And I thank you so much for doing Rebel Without Applause. No, it's not a problem, man. I'm so happy to be a part of this. It's been a while since we've been able to talk. Um, but I feel like we have a level of comfort between us, so it doesn't really get too formal. But we can just kind of flow. So, um, you know, and I know I talked a long time about gumball and shit like that. So <laughs> no, that's, that, that's, that's, that's actually great because, you know, I think it's great to, for other people to see other passions of yours and other sides of you uh, because you are so multifaceted and so many interesting parts and moving parts of your life. And uh, I think people should, you know, should know a little bit more about you. They already love you. Uh, this is just more reasons to love you. Thank you so much, Marie, man. Let's, let's do this again, like real soon, though. You know what I'm saying? I know in oh, a couple sure. of, unfortunately in a couple of months, this country is still going to look different than it does now. Like 2020 just been going circling down the toilet bowl or whatever. So let's just touch base and say two, three months and see what America looks like then. Sounds good to me. All right. Yeah. Thanks, bud. No problem. God bless, man. Have a good one. Same to you. <laughs>